brethren, if we could go ahead and reconvene, look together again to the scriptures as we continue to consider this doctrine of particular redemption. Uh, I would ask you to consider with me a little bit more of the Old Testament background. We turned you to Ephesians 1, but let me ask you to go back to the Old Testament as we spoke about those all nations in uh, Genesis 12.3. I want to look at a couple of references in the book of Psalms and Isaiah. If I were a Scotsman, I would say the book of Psalms, but I'm not a Scotsman, so I'll say the book of Psalms. I'd ask you to turn to the Psalm of our Lord's suffering that is in Psalm 22, please. Psalm 22. And uh, as we think about the particularity of Christ's work, even as we see it in the Old Testament, we see again, I believe, that biblical universality that is found back there in those words of Genesis 12. And that thread continues throughout the New Testament scriptures, throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament as well as we see a wideness to the work of Messiah that it appears Israel lost sight of in the days when our Lord appeared in the flesh. But in Psalm 22, we also see that particularity. Uh, many of you are familiar with this psalm as it begins with the words that our Savior uttered on the tree. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as our Savior spoke those words, it seems there was a conscious uh, aligning of himself with the righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. And in, in doing that, I think we rightly see these words as prophetic and predictive of our Savior. Out of them, I would ask you please to notice words that we find there in, uh, in verse 22. These words are cited, you'll recall, by the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2 as he speaks of our Lord Jesus and God's purpose in Him becoming a man. Psalm 22, again, verse 22. This is after that break point where we move from the suffering to, to the glory that will follow the sufferings. To use Peter's words in 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And in Psalm 22, verse 22, we read, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now you'll remember that the writer of the Hebrews quotes these words as he speaks specifically about how, as it says there in verse 10, and God willing, we hope to look at Hebrews 2. If not... This is the foretaste, you know. The black preacher said, I tell them what I'm going to tell them, then I tell them, then I tell them what I told them, you know. And by the way, that's good preaching too. Repetition, repetition. So we look here, and the writer of the Hebrews, remember in Hebrews 2.10 says, For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And as the writer speaks of that and then shows Old Testament references that align with God's purpose, His pretemporal purpose to bring many sons to glory and to do it by the means, the mechanism of the death of Christ, the sufferings of Messiah, as he speaks of that, he cites these words. And they're words that are very particular. Christ speaks here and says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, the assembly, will I Praise thee. Now, I would ask you, who are these brethren? Well, we could say they're Israelites, and that would be accurate, I believe. No question, there are some of Israel who will be among the brethren. But it's wider than that. 
For you see, there are those to whom Jesus Christ as kinsman redeemer sustains the relationship, and they are his family. They are those who were given him, as John's uh, gospel bears witness, inciting the words of our Lord again and again. And you remember the ultimate prayer of our Lord that's found at the end of John 17, when he speaks about those who are given to him. Remember, Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That's going to happen, brothers and sisters. Every one the Father's given him will be with him where he is. And that's why in those words of Hebrews 2, the writer cites Isaiah 8, Behold, I and the children whom thou hast given me. One day the Lord Jesus is going to present those brethren to the Father, and he'll do so with those words, no doubt. Behold, Father, I and the children whom thou hast given me. Where did he get those children? They were given to him. They're his brethren. And he is going to do what? Declare the Father's name to his brethren. What is that? That's nothing less than eternal life, according to John 17, 3, isn't it? For this is life eternal, that they may what? Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. And when it speaks of him declaring the Father's name to his brethren, that's what it's talking about. He's going to declare the Father's person and character to whom? His brethren. What is this psalm about? It's a psalm of the sufferings of our Lord. But even here in this Old Testament predictive psalm of our Lord's suffering, we see that element of particularity. If you would drop down with me as well to verse 30 of Psalm 22. We read there, and this is such a glorious psalm in declaring the exaltation of our Savior. But verse 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. And that, brothers and sisters, will be our testimony. He hath done it. Someone told me that those words in the Hebrew could be understood. It is finished. I like that. Haven't checked it out. I, I, I know a little Hebrew, you know. Somebody said he runs the bakery down the road, you know. Uh, I don't care much for that, by the way, but anyway. Uh, my Hebrew is very limited. I, I, the, the stems don't always agree with me, the call and the hefil, you know. I, I can pick some of them out. But anyway, I haven't checked that out. But, but the thought in verse 30 is, who will serve him? A seed. What is a seed? Well, it's a progeny, if you will. It's a posterity. It is, it is descendants, if you will. Johann Albrecht Bingel, who was an early student of the Greek New Testament after the Reformation, Bingel said of our Lord, he had no children that he might bless all children. And you know what? He had no children, but it's already been pointed out today. He did have a seed, did he not? There were those who were his brethren, those given to him by God the Father before the world began. And that seed will serve him. And if you look in the words of Psalm 22, you'll see it's, there's a universality about it. As all nations, all they that go down to the earth or go down to the pit shall bow before him. There's a universality about it. The nations, the kingdoms will come under the authority of the Son of Man. That is the success that Christ has accomplished by, again, the fulcrum of his cross work. 
And as we think about that seed that will serve him, I'd ask you to go over with me, please, to, the, to that last, as it's often called, servant song of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Now, whether it be a song indeed, some now dissent from that idea that we have those servant songs that begin in chapter 42, and they carry on as we have the songs of the servant there through chapter 53. Whatever the case about the song, we know this, the servant is there. The servant is seen. He's presented there in those words of chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I, um, whom I uphold, mine elect, upon whom I put my spirit, and whom my soul's well pleased. Those words that speak of our Savior. He's presented by the Father as the servant. He's that, that scion of David. He's that descendant of David that has earlier appeared, whose character is deity. As Isaiah prophesies, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. He's also the child born, the son given in that book of Emmanuel in chapters 6 through 12 of Isaiah. And his character as God is clearly seen for he is called mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, father of eternity. But he's seen as well as deity in chapter 11 verse 1 when he's the rod out of Jesse. But then in chapter 11, verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. Now, which is he? I can imagine the Jews of Isaiah's day, brother Isaiah, which is he? Is he the rod or is he the root? There's a difference between a rod, you know. The rod comes from the trunk. The root is what the trunk comes from. Which is he? And it would be like the time when I was eating dinner after preaching out in the country in North Carolina years ago. Deacon Jesse Benson's wife asked me, Brother David, would you like cornbread or biscuits? And I said, yes. <laughs> Which one is he, Isaiah? Is he the rod or is he the root? Yes. For you see, in his humanity, he's the rod. He comes from Jesse, but in his deity... He's the root from whom not only Jesse, but all of us take our origin and existence. He's deity. He's declared to be that in that book of Emmanuel. But as Isaiah carries us forward to speak so predictively, often called the evangelical prophet, as he speaks prophetically of our Savior, Isaiah also shows us him. If he came as God and man, surely he would be welcomed in king's homes. No, behold my servant he comes he comes and he's not recognized his visage is so marred in fact that it's unrecognizable that's the picture we get in that last installment of the servant of course i think chapter 61 really qualifies but in verses 50, uh, verse 13 of chapter 52 through verse 10, 12 of chapter 53 we have that extended prophecy of the servant again in his sufferings and in some measure it seems to pick up on the heels of Psalm 22 in some respects one particular is found there in verses 10 and 11 please as we think again about the particularity of our Savior's work please notice Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 yet Brothers and sisters, I don't believe that these words ought to be words of a sterile Bible study. When we read verse 10, you and I are on holy ground. 
yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him, the servant in whom he said he was pleased, the servant in whom he delighted, it pleased him, the Lord, to bruise that servant. He has put him to grief. And then Isaiah breaks forth in prayer and he says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, the Hebrew word is actually stronger. It's not chatath here. It's asham. It's the word for trespass offering or guilt offering. And that tells us what was happening at the cross. The holy soul of Jehovah's well-pleasing servant was being made an asham. It was being made a trespass offering. It was being made a guilt offering. That is, God treated His Son as though He were our sin, and all the guilt that our sin had accrued was measured out to Him. And so Isaiah breaks out in prayer, and he says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, some I know translate it, when his soul shall be made an offering for sin. But, but either way, I love the prayer aspect here. As he, as he looks at what Jehovah was doing in being pleased to bruise his son, he breaks out in prayer, and he says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, three things would happen. Notice the first of them, please. He shall see his seed. Have we encountered that seed? Why, well, we just saw it in Psalm 22, the words of David. A seed shall serve, and it shall be accounted to him for a generation. What's happening here? In the suffering of our Lord Jesus on the tree, it's said that out of that a seed will serve him. Here we see, I believe, again, the particularity of Christ's work. It says further of the Lord's servant, He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What is the upshot of him bearing their iniquities? Justification for them. Notice verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There we see the work of Messiah on behalf of sinners. And while there is about it a character of biblical universality, all nations are included, all the people groups of the earth are included, there is also a particularity about it, so that those for whom he bore their transgressions are justified and as well he does as our brother spoke in his question this morning those for whom he offered himself as high priest in sacrifice he is high priest intercedes on their behalf and the work of our savior is joined there as high priest we see that here but thank God brothers and sisters I say to you Messiah who suffered, the servant who, whom it pleased the Lord to bruise, he shall see his seed. One day, all of those for whom he gave himself will stand in his presence, redeemed, not being told, depart from me, I never knew you, but being told, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That, brothers and sisters, will be the Savior's welcome to us as we stand in that great day because 
He bore our iniquities. He took the guilt. He became the asham. He became that sin offering, that guilt offering, that trespass offering. And as our brother John has already preached to us from those words of 2 Corinthians 5, the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Was he a sinner? No. He was the one who knew no sin. I am acquainted with sin. I, like the book of Job says, I drink up iniquity like water. I know what it is to take deep drafts of sin. Even now as a saved person, I sin more than I want to. But his holy soul knew no sin. His holy soul was totally, thoroughly unacquainted with sin. And yet, as he became our sin bearer and surety and substitute, the Father rolled on him all the weight of his wrath towards sin because he had engaged himself to become our surety and substitute. So it is that Isaiah speaks, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But thank God, brothers and sisters, thank God for the blessed result of that work. He shall see his seed. Well, as we've looked at some New Testament background here, we, we, we could in just a broad way think about with regard to the Old Testament, those representative roles of persons within the Old Testament. In some measure, again, the high priest stands as an example of that. When the high priest went into God's presence, whom did he represent? He carried on his shoulders and on his heart a breastplate that had 12 stones and 12 names written on it. Oh, yes, you remember them, don't you? The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Hittites, right? No, no. There was a particularity. The names of the tribes of Israel were written on that breastplate. And again, I would say to you, there's, there's even in that the, the, the character of particularity that the Father was giving in the type. And it's reflected in the work of the antitype, our Lord Jesus. We see it in, in the case of a giant who comes out in 40 days he taunts Israel send me a man if he can beat me we Philistines will be your servant but if I defeat him you Israelites will have to serve us and Israel cowers in their tents even Saul whose head and shoulders above the Israelites won't go out but there appears a stripling youth who is the Lord's anointed who's come to, sent by the Father to check on his brethren. That was free for you. <laughs> sent by the Father from the house of bread, by the way, to check on his brethren. Don't call me a wild typologist. I believe in correspondence, Brother Blake. I believe in the correspondence that God is writing that meta-narrative, brother. Amen. And what does he do? not for his own honor, not even for the honor of Israel, but for the honor of God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What does he do? He goes by the brook in the way. I think he took a drink of it, as Psalm 110.7 says. But he picked up five stones. And he goes down, and in representative battle, he meets Goliath. And what does he do? Defeats him and kills him with his own sword. Reminds me of one who through death slew death. He 
took death and turned death on itself so that the death of death took place in the death of Christ. We see it in those representative roles of prophet and priest and king. And so it is that Calvin, as he spoke of the work of our Savior, used that, that, uh, that threefold division to speak of the offices of our Lord, and, and rightly so. But I would say to you, in those offices in the Old Testament, there is a representative character that those offices had. And the king stood as, on behalf of the people. And it's interesting in that regard. We find so much in the book of Judges, don't we? That the children of Israel again, again did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. But when you come to the books of Kings, what do you find? There's a movement away from the people to what? The king. He walked not as David his father, right? Why? Because of the representative character of the king there. You see, there, there, there's that in itself that argues of itself for particularity. But I want us to turn to some New Testament passages, my brethren. And as we do that, we, we have so much to look at. But the Lord helping us, we'll do some of it. And uh, hopefully that will help us to see something more of the particularity of Christ's work. I'd ask you to turn back with me, please, to the book of Ephesians. Seems like we keep going there, don't we? Chapter 1. If you would, please, notice again, as we looked at verse 7, notice again the benediction. But if you would, begin with me back at verse 3. And if we could, again, just hammer that nail. Or to quote the words of the preacher, I tell him what I'm going to tell him, then I tell him, then I tell him what I told him. In Ephesians 1.3, we read these words that open this benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We'll stop there. Of course, the whole benediction is worthy of being read down through verse 14 as it, it gives us that thought of to the praise of the glory of His grace. But in those words that begin the benediction in verse 3, as the apostle speaks, he wants to remind God's people at Ephesus of the wealth of spiritual blessing that's been given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he begins the words of benediction, verse 3 opens with this thought, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we read those words, and they're not found alone here, Paul uses them other places in his epistles. Peter uses that expression as well. In the epistolary literature, it's found, it seems, a number of times, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I remind you, whenever we read those words, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are immediately thrust upon incarnation ground. Because from old eternity, the Son knew the Father and the Father knew the Son. But when by a virgin womb, the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, all of a sudden, He sustained a new relationship to the Father. And the one who was His Father from old eternity now became His God. I might illustrate it for you from our Savior's words in John chapter 4. You remember the conversation by the well at Sychar? The woman wants to argue religion when Christ brings up her sin, right? 
Go call your husband. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You Jews say that Jerusalem is a place to worship. Let's talk about religion. I don't want to talk about my sin. Let's talk about religion. Garrison, we say Garrison is the place to worship, you know. The Lord Jesus tells her something. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither at this mountain or Jerusalem will men people worship God, but they that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And then notice what our Savior says. Ye worship, ye know not what. But follow his words now. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. What happened? This rabbi that's there at Sychar who must needs go through Samaria because there's a sheep there, by the way. This rabbi who's going through Sychar. What, what has happened? Well, you see, from old eternity, he is the son, knew the father. But when by a virgin womb he became a man, all of a sudden the one who deserves worship, the one who was worshipped, became a God worshiper. We know what we worship. And when we read that phrase, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are thrown on incarnation ground. Now I realize there's been debate about the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ, discussion about that. I don't want to argue that either way now, but I would say this. It was necessary for the Lord Jesus Christ to become a God worshiper, made of a woman, made under the law, so that he might answer the demands of the law, and by that, earn the right to die for sinners. Whether the act of obedience is imputed or not, I'm not going to argue that. But if he had not measured up to the standard, he would not have been fit to take the place at the tree. So it is, brothers and sisters, he measured up. And this one, who was made of a woman, made under the law, he could say, ye worship, ye know not what, but we know what we worship for salvations of the Jews. How could he say that? Because Abraham's God had become Abraham's seed. Abraham's God had been born as one of that physical seed of Abraham. Why? So that in the purpose of God, he might do what the latter half of verse 3 says, bring spiritual blessing to a people who were given him by God, as verse 4 says. And among those spiritual blessings that we see unpacked in Ephesians 1, that benediction, among those spiritual blessings that God gives us in his Son is the blessing of redemption through his blood. But it happens and this is something that is vital to see. Some of you remember the name of Anselm from medieval theology. Anselm wrote a book in Latin. It was entitled Cur Deus Homo. And if we would roughly translate it in English, we would ask, why did God become man? And in that book, Anselm answered, and I believe rightly, though some have tried to take, the way, take satisfaction away from him, but Anselm answered rightly, that God's justice had to be satisfied because of our sin. You and I, through our sin, have positive demerit that could only be satisfied by the Son of God taking to Himself our sin and making satisfaction to God's justice. Now, if you don't like the mercantilism of it, as some like to say, the idea of debt and all, then do away with it. But I heard our Savior say, taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not mercantile language. It's biblical language. For you see, by my sin, as a rational being of Adam's race, I owe a debt to the justice of God. I need a redeemer because I have failed by sins of omission and sins of commission to, to measure up to his righteous standard. 
and Jesus Christ, praise God, he measures up. Because he measures up, he's able to take what David Morris couldn't pay and pay it for me. And in the words of the gospel chorus, I'm able to say because of the work of Christ, I owed a debt. Excuse me, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. What Anselm shows is that as, as he traces out that question of why did God become man, he basically sets these two things in tension. In order to pay for sin, to pay for sin requires that the finite suffer infinitely or that the infinite suffer finitely. You and I as finite creatures can never satisfy God's justice through our suffering. That's why hell is eternal. The finite, you and I, limited finite beings, in order to satisfy God's justice, which we can never do, we have to suffer infinitely. Oh, that there were someone... Oh, that there were a being of infinite worth and value who could come down and, and, and in the space of time pay that penalty. May I say to you, that's what the God-man has done. The Lord Jesus Christ, infinite in His glory, infinite in His being, infinite in His person, He came down by a virgin womb to this low ground of sorrow. And what did He do? He contracted to pay what I could not pay, bless His name. He contracted to pay what I owed but could not pay. He did not owe, but he said, I'll pay it. And as he has paid that debt, I tell you, the debt being paid, God the Father says to those for whom he paid it, discharge, free, free, free. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we hang our hopes on the doing and dying indeed of the God-man. We thank God for that work that he's accomplished. And when we bless the Father, we bless him as Paul does here sometimes. We bless him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did God become man? It was for that purpose. It was for that reason. And as we reflect on that, we certainly can give God glory. What I'd like to, in the time that remains, the Lord willing look at what I guess could be called problem passages. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson on one occasion at the Seaside Heights Conference in New Jersey uh, dealt with three problem passages. I don't know that we'll be able to look at all three. I might have to touch on one in only a passing way, but I'd like to address two of them if we could. I direct your attention first of all to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. John Owen, in that book to which we made reference at the beginning of our first message, John Owen points out how some Arminians, when we begin to talk about the particularity of Christ's redemptive work, they throw up the, they throw up the words all and world like they were bugaboos to scare us, you know. I believe in particular redemption. Oh! I believe in particular redemption. World! Is that enough to 
pull the carpet out from under us? Oh, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, I, I don't run from those words. I dearly love them. Because understood contextually, those words that are found in those verses support what we believe. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, please, and notice what the apostle says in those words. Uh, let's go back to verse 12 just to pick up a little bit of the larger context. But I want you specifically to focus with me on verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In these verses 14 and 15, we see ground that has often been claimed by those of an Arminian or even an Amaraldian persuasion concerning the work of our Lord in his redemptive activity. Uh, I think, though, when we read these words, it's much like what Brother Spurgeon said in his sermon, Free Will a Slave, on John 40. Some of you will remember that sermon. Great, great message. Brother Spurgeon takes those words of our Lord in John 40, Ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. And he says it in the introduction of his message, This verse has long been a gun of the Arminian, which they have aimed at us. He said, today I intend to spike their gun, or better, to turn their gun on them, for it was never theirs to begin with. And I believe that's true of this passage. When we look at what Paul, by inspiration, is saying here in 2 Corinthians 5, it's important, I believe, to take, to always bear in mind when you read Paul and you think of what he says in Christ, to keep in mind the Adam-Christ contrast. I would have looked at it, but because Brother John, I believe, is going to be dealing with that tomorrow morning, Romans 5, right, brother? Because he's going to be dealing with that, and I know he'll treat it well with regard to that, it's important to bear in mind, though, that the whole construct, in, in some respects, of Pauline theology is, is based against the touchstone of the Adam-Christ contrast. And if we forget that, we can misread Scripture. One of the reasons, I believe, that Romans 5 is found where it is in the place of Romans as Paul moves from justification to sanctification is in measure as Paul's writing to the church at Rome, which he had never been to before, he wants to present an apologetic for his, his uh, missionary activity. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. He magnifies his office, as he says later in Romans 9 through 11. But he's presented, if you will, in Romans 5, a missiological apologetic for his work as an apostle of the Gentiles. And what's he saying? He's saying all men need the gospel of Christ because all men have fallen in Adam. So as far as Adam's fall is extended, we take the gospel. And thank God redemption is found in Christ as far as Adam's curse is found. But it's found in a distinctive way in that just as Adam had a people, a seed, may I say, a posterity, so the Lord Jesus Christ possesses what? Saw it in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He possesses a seed as well. And if we fail to remember that, I believe we'll do violence to Scripture. 
here in 2 Corinthians 5, the text is, I think, even more obvious. In verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That second all in the Greek New Testament has the definite article before it. Hoi pantes in the Greek text, it reads. If you wanted to, you could translate it this way then. That if one died for all, then the all died. Now the upshot of it is union with Christ here. Again, two peoples, two men in history. Those two men are Adam, and you and I hung from the loins of Adam by ordinary generation. But not every son of Adam hangs from the loins of Christ. He has a seed. And for those who are in union with him. Now, if we trace this out biblically, there is a pre-temporal union that he sustains with his people. Amen? A pre-temporal, before-time union. For you and I were chosen how? In him, before the foundation of the world. In time, that union will become a vital reality as the Spirit of God, through the work of the gospel and conviction of the Spirit, brings us to faith in Christ, regenerates us, and we are now vitally joined in union to Jesus Christ. No longer in Adam, now joined to Christ. But the reality of that union flows out of the death of Christ. For as Paul says here, we thus judge. If one died for all, what happened to the all for whom he died? Then the all died. What is this? Well, if you will, it's Romans 6 in a nutshell. What does Paul tell us in Romans 6? That those for whom, he, for whom Christ died, died in him. And when he rose, what did they do? They rose in him. And that matter of union with Christ is at the heart of Pauline theology and flows out of the Adam-Christ contrast. Here in this case, Paul, as he traces out the efficacy of the work of Christ, if one died for all, ara, the inferential particle in Greek, then the all died as a result of his death. The idea of the King James may be a little mis bit misleading. Then we're all dead. The idea that, well, they were dead in sin, so Christ had to die for them. That's not the thrust or upshot of it. The idea, rather, is as he died for these all, those all for whom he died, died in him. But what else happens? Go on with me, please, to the words of verse 15. And that he died for all, that they which live, the Greek hosontes, that the living ones, who are these living ones? The ones brought to life through his death, who died in him, that the living ones should do what? Should no longer live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Brother David Bennett, who's with us this week, told me in the break, that one of the problems of the Armenian is, would you give us a statement again, brother, about purpose? Thank you, brother. Think about that a moment in regard not only to this text. I'll say it in the microphone. Thank you, brotherness. Uh, you can't separate the act from the purpose. That is, you can't separate the act of Christ's death from the purpose for his death. Here's a good example of that among countless others in Scripture. What was the purpose of his death? That those for whom he died should what? No longer live to themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Now, we have the act. Does the act succeed in securing the purpose for which it was given? 
Absolutely. For you see, that's the thrust of Romans 6, is it not? As Paul has spoken there in that Adam-Christ contrast to Romans 5, and he said where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, he goes on in Romans 6 to say, What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are what? Dead to sin, continuing longer therein. You and I have been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4 says. How does that happen? Through his death. It's not my faith that gives power to his death. It's his death that gives me faith. And as that death gives me faith, I'm joined to him. And being joined to him, the fruit of his death and his resurrection life becomes mine. Mine now, but not yet as well. And that flows out of what he did as he stood in our place. For you see, the reality is not only was he my substitute, but also I was identified with him as my substitute. And just as surely as I died in Adam, I died in Christ. But something better happened to me than what happened to me in Adam, in Christ. I not only died, to, died in Adam and in Christ, but in Christ I was raised. Raised to new life. And that is the efficacious result, brothers and sisters, of his death. And so it is. I'm living today. And I'm alive. But as I'm alive, I'm alive for a different purpose. Oh, sometimes that old master sounds mighty good. But you know what? I've got a new bat master now. I've got a new boss. I've got a new Lord. And now I'm yielding allegiance to Jesus Christ. Oh, it's not perfect. One day it will be, though. And that is the invariable result of the death that he died for his people. And the all, all here can't be forced or violated to say what it doesn't say. It, it certainly speaks of a biblical universality because Paul, as the apostle of the Gentile, did magnify his office. But it can't be twisted to support a, a false and unbiblical universalism that says that's what he did for every man of Adam's race. No, that's separating the act from the purpose. And we can't do that because we do injustice to Scripture if we do that. Because this is the word of the living God about why his son died. He died for all that, and as a result of that, they all died. What they died to sin. And as they died to sin, what else happened? Well, he rose for them. And as they rose for him, uh, that he rose for them, what happened for them? They rose too. And as they've been raised, they're raised now to walk in obedience to him and to live for him who gave himself for them. And that, brothers and sisters, is why he gave himself. Well, there's so many other scriptures that speak about that, but we want to focus particularly again on the problem text. And I want to ask you to turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 2. And again, the words of Brother Spurgeon that he uses to introduce John 5.40 are applicable here. This is a text that the Arminian has aimed as a gun at us and said, whole world... <laughs> cannon fire but I'll say what brother Spurgeon did it was never their gun to begin with let's look together at this portion please brothers and sisters in verse 1 of chapter 2 1 John my little children these things write out unto you that ye sin not 
And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I can hear some brethren who would be of an Armenian stripe saying, gotcha. And to that I'd have to reply, I don't think so. You see, John is writing here in this context to encourage believers when they sin. And as he does that, I would ask you, just on the ground of the context, what value is a hypothetical propitiation to comfort people? If I've sinned, and I'm being encouraged in my sin that I can be forgiven because Christ is my advocate and propitiation, but then millions of those for whom he gave himself as propitiation wind up in hell, then what encouragement is that to me, contextually? But more than that, I would tell you to notice the language of the text, verse 2. John writes in those opening words, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Gresham Machen once made a statement, thank God for the indicative mood. You know, the indicative mood, as we speak of language, the indicative mood is the matter-of-fact mood from the standpoint of the speaker. And we have subjunctive moods. Should I do this? Should I do that? That's deliberative. We have other moods. You know, I'm talking about language here, not emotions, okay? We have other moods. But, but here, this is the indicative mood. Now, sometimes indicative statements can be made that aren't really genuinely made like I could tell you the moon is made of green cheese or my name is Napoleon you know I could do that and that would be an indicative statement but you would know that that statement by its very nature is false even though it's indicative here though we have an indicative statement given not only by John the Apostle but also by the God who inspired John the Apostle to write these words and he says of our Savior the advocate Jesus Christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins. What is a propitiation? The Greek word is hilasmos here. Hilasmos and the word propitiation as we have it in English has the idea of an atoning sacrifice that turns away wrath. That's at the heart of the, the hilaskomai verbs in, uh, words in, uh, in Greek. And, and, and it, some of you know of, of the debate that Leon Morris answered back in the 50s that basically said that, that the idea of wrath isn't to be found in, in Alaska, my words. It, it, it should be expiation, not propitiation. And Dodd answered that. No, it's not right. Basically, C.H. Dodd and others wanted to say the wrath of God is impersonal. It's not a personal attribute of God. It's just the natural fallout of sin in the universe. And, and Dodd and, of course, the scriptures, it's, I mean, excuse me, Morris and scriptures, that's a good name, by the way. Um, the scriptures themselves point out that wrath, God's holy furor against sin, is personal. It's not something that is outside of himself. It's just the natural flow of universe like Buddha's karma. No. God is good and angry about sin. God is good and angry against sin. And he must punish it. He must deal with it. You and I deal with it so lightly. You and I view it so, so, so lightly. But God's serious about sin. He's so serious that if you and I were to be saved, His Son must become that atoning sacrifice that turns away wrath. That's what a propitiation is. 
but notice the words of the text again and he is the propitiation for our sins he is he's the atoning sacrifice that turns away wrath if this in, 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 the, in the thought of an unwarranted unbiblical universalism if these words mean Christ is the sacrifice that turned away wrath for every man of Adam's race then I ask you why are sinners in hell right now I ask that seriously why are sinners in hell right now where is the assurance of Romans 8 when Paul says he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not also with him freely give us all things that's particular I tell you for because Christ died for us all things are going to be given to us that's not true of a universal or general redemption here as John speaks I believe brothers and sisters we can see rightly in the light of scripture that John is writing as an apostle of the circumcision now I owe this to John Owen and what he gave me greatly helped me but if you would turn back with me to Galatians chapter 2 please Galatians chapter 2 from the Revelation, we, it's widely known that, that John labored in the area of what we would know as western Turkey, modern-day Turkey, that western portion. He labored in that part that was westernmost, and we know those seven churches of Asia that are addressed in the Revelation. They would have been in that westernmost part of Turkey, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, and, and uh, Laodicea. Though that area, John exercised the ministry. But to whom did John, like Peter, it appears, exercise a specific ministry? Galatians 2, I believe, provides us that answer. Look with me, please, at the words of Paul. And uh, let us pick up at verse 6, please. We'll have to read a little bit, but as we read, I think we can see something that will give us some insight into 1 John 2. But of, again, Galatians 2, 6. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter... For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's the Aramaic form of Peter's name, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor the same which I also was forward to do. To whom was John specifically commissioned in his apostleship to minister, along with James? We have a letter by that name. Whom does he address? The twelve tribes. We have Peter. Whom does he address? The stranger scattered, and it seems there is a Jewish character to his first letter especially. Now, when, that, when that's said, does that mean you and I don't derive benefit from it? Oh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that they were primarily given the apostleship of the circumcision. 
Now, what about Paul? Well, we've already mentioned his words from Romans, but what does he say? As the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Paul gloried in the fact that he is a Jew, a rabbi who had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He gloried in the fact that he was sent to the Gentiles, and his cry, his constant cry was to the regions beyond where Christ has not, let, not been named. Don't let me build on another man's foundation. But James and Peter and John were primarily ministering to the circumcision. Now when John writes here, what does he remind his Jewish believing readers of? He reminds them of the fact that Jesus didn't just die for Israel. 2,000 years later after the gospels been going to the Gentiles, you and I don't have a lot of problem with that. But they did. You and I need to remember that when we read the New Testament Scriptures. Don't put on your 21st century glasses and start reading these words and forget about the fact that the gospel had gone primarily to Israel. As the Psalms say, He made known His statutes to Jacob. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. So Peter had a hard time, didn't he? What God has cleansed, don't call common or unclean. He opened the door to the Gentiles the gospel door but his ministry primarily appears to have been among the circumcision John 2 by the way what's what's a note of John that we find in his first letter what's one of his emphases love the brethren do you think this apostle of the circumcision had a reason for saying that I believe so because he wanted those Jewish believers whom he had seen come to Christ under his preaching of the gospel he wanted them to remember that there are Gentile believers. And by the way, these words of 1 John 2, 2, as we look at that, he's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but the whole world. Those words tie in so well with John's gospel. Some have said about 1 John that it's a commentary on John's gospel. But I would say to you here, that about which the commentary is written provides a good commentary on what the commentary was written about. As one brother said one time about commentaries, the Bible shed a whole lot of light on them commentaries. <laughs> well, similarly here, what the commentary was written about will shed a lot of light on the commentary. For what do we find throughout John's gospel, the consistent thread? We could all quote John 3.16, but we forget sometimes contextually to whom John 3.16 was spoken by our Lord, don't we? John Wycliffe said in writing rules about Bible study, it will greatly help you in studying the Scriptures if you'll ask questions of the text. And let's ask a question of the text. To whom is our Lord speaking? Nicodemus, who is he? Well, in the Greek text of John 3, he's called the teacher in Israel. Is it possible that Nicodemus, as the teacher in Israel, would have himself sustained and embraced a view that many in Israel held that Messiah was coming only for Israel with judgment and damnation to the nations? I would imagine so. And so our Lord speaks about that brazen serpent in John 3, 14 and 15. And what does he say? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. But then Nicodemus, if I rang that bell but you didn't answer the door, let me tell you who the whosoever are. For you might think since the whosoever's in Numbers 21 were only Israelites, that maybe those whosoever's in verse 15 are only Israelites. Let me expand on that, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Nicodemus, I did not come as Messiah only for Israel. Yes, I have come for them, but I have come as well for the nations. I have come not to bring brandishing judgment for all the Gentiles. I have come that I might bring life to them as well. Follow it on in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Our Lord must needs go through Samaria. The good shepherd's got a lost sheep up there. As a matter of fact, more than one. Why, there's just about a whole town in Sychar. And as the woman comes, says, Come see a man that told me all things ever I did. Boy, those men wanted to get in on that. They knew what she'd been. Five husbands and living with the man. I want to hear what she's done. That's what she told him. Come see a man told me all things ever I did. And when they get there, they tell the woman after they hear our Lord's words, what do they say? We believe because of what you said first, but now we want you to know we believe because we've heard him ourselves and we know that he is what? The Savior of the world. Though he is a Jew, as Samaritans here in Sychar, we realize, thank God, that Jew didn't come just for Israel. He is the Savior of the world. And there we have a biblical universality. Again, I juxtapose it. It's not, not a biblical language or terminology there, but not an unbiblical universalism, but a biblical universality. But let's follow that thread on through John's gospel. In John chapter 10, what does our Lord say? As he's speaking about himself as the good shepherd, and he speaks very particularly, doesn't he? For he says the good shepherd dies for the goats, right? No. In fact, he says the good shepherd dies for the sheep, and he tells some of those listening to him, you believe not, why? Because you're not of my sheep. That sounds definitely particular. But as he speaks, we see something of a biblical universality, don't we? For what does he say? He says as he speaks to those Jews, Other sheep have I who are not of this fold, the Jewish fold. He said, Them also I must bring, just like he must needs go through Samaria. He had a Samaritan sheep there. He must bring those other sheep, those Gentile sheep. There, uh, I'm not of the Jewish fold. I'm a goy. I'm a dog. But I'm his puppy. And I'm eating from the master's table. And just a crumb will do fine, y'all. Just a crumb will satisfy. You see, he had come with a wider view than just Israel's blessing. He came for the blessing of the Gentiles. But follow it on beyond John 10. Look at John 11. And notice a man who is a heathen lost one. Well, he's actually not a heathen in that sense. He's a Jewish lost one. He's high priest that year, Caiaphas. And as the, as the Jews are talking, what are we going to do about Jesus? He's so popular, the Romans are going to come and take us all away. And this is the Mars paraphrase, but basically says, you fools. Now, in the King James, it says, you know nothing at all. But, you know, that's... Southern parlance, you fools, you know. You guys are idiots, in other words. You're, you're no-nothings. You don't realize it's expedient that one man should die for the people. And then John adds this. This he said, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die not only for that nation, but also that he might what? Gather together the Children of God who were scattered throughout the whole world. Think about that. There's a biblical universality there. When Paul went to Corinth in Acts 18, what did the Savior tell him? Paul was worried because it looked like the Jews were going to break loose in persecution again. And the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, 
Fear not, Paul, for no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. They were sheep. They were lost sheep, but they were still his sheep. And he was going to call them out by the gospel. And that's what he says. That's what Caiaphas himself unwittingly prophesied as, as John adds that supplement to it. And you know after that, they start talking. Will he come to the feast? Passover was coming. And the question's bandied at the end of John 11. Will he come to the feast? I want you to know the lamb is coming to the feast. The lamb isn't going to miss this feast because this is the predestined time. And as the lamb shows up for the feast, the triumphal entry occurs. The Jews yell, Hosanna. They praise him. They, they, they bless him that comes in the name of the Lord. But what happens in John 12? Some, some Gentiles, some Greeks come to Philip. Philip is one of the disciples of our Lord, one of the 12. But Philip, like Andrew, is a Greek name. Philip wasn't a Jewish name. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. They come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip gets Andrew and goes and tells our Lord. And then our Lord starts talking strange, it seems. He says, Except a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat, fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it fall into the ground and die, it bringeth forth much fruit. What's he telling those? He's saying, Those Greeks want to see me. And he said, it's going to happen because I'm that grain of wheat. You see, you and I all didn't have life in ourselves. We, we, we were bad seed, but he, he's, he's the true Israel. He's the, he's the good seed. And you know what happened to that grain of wheat, the good seed? He fell into the ground, and he died. He, he germinated, though, in his death. And, and life has sprung. Life has come forth from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's happened? If he'd have not died, what would have happened? He'd have remained alone. But he has died, so what has happened? He'll bring forth much fruit. And what has he gone on to say? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will do what? Draw all men unto me. This spake he, signifying what manner of death he would die. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What happened though? Through his being lifted up. He's telling those Greeks the message. We would see Jesus. And he's saying, you will see me. For when I am lifted up, I will draw all men. Not all men without exception, but all men without distinction. I'll draw Greek sinners. Thank God, American sinners. Ugandan sinners. South Sea Pacific sinners. Mexican sinners. Who don't even speak Spanish. They're so far back up there in the mountains. And what is going to happen? The upshot of it all, brothers and sisters, is what John writes in Revelation. And I'd ask you to turn with me in closing, please, to Revelation chapter 5. And here we have, if you will, that, that follow-up of inspired Joannine commentary on 1 John 2.2. 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. Let's follow John's words here. and The whole chapter is, is a great chapter. It's such a blessed portion, but... If I may, just let me ask you to notice, please. Is, you remember the context. There's a scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. 
And the, the challenge goes out. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no one in heaven and earth is found worthy. And John weeps much. But then all of a sudden, John's told, Stop your crying. Dry your tears, John. For the lion of the tribe of Judith prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And if you would look with me, please, picking up at verse 6 of Revelation 5. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven eyes and seven horns, rather, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. I tell you, the lamb is worthy to do that. The lamb is worthy because the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We read on, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, and the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has, and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Do you see this, brothers and sisters, as we think of that, that reality of him being the propitiation not for our sins, as John writes to Jewish believers, but for the sins of the whole world? Do you see the reality of it here as the efficacious work of Christ answering to the divine intent of the Father that out of all the people groups of the earth, there will one day be those standing in the presence of the Lamb. And as they stand before the Lamb, there's one cry that ushers from their lips and that cry is worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy art thou. All the people groups of the earth brought together as they have been redeemed by the work of Christ. And the acclamation continues for John writes in verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that in them heard I saying, Blessing and honoring, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and of the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. Four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. There we see, if you will, the success of the Savior. The success of the Lamb. And the fact that what he did for sinners of all the nations will be applied to them by the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel and brought to faith in God's dear Son. One day they will stand before the Lamb out of all the nations and they will be saying, Worthy art thou, for thou hast redeemed us to God. You bought us back. You paid the price. And that price, that ransom secured my release. And now I'm before your throne day and night, worshiping you, giving glory to you. And we'll be there not through our works, not through our merit. We'll be there through the work of him who loved us and gave himself for us. And only through that. But brothers and sisters, as we read in the capstone book of the Bible, this book of Revelation, that which the seed plot book of the Bible announced, noticed how they dovetail together. All nations blessed in him. And what do we have at the end of the book? All nations are blessed in him. Amen, Brother Larry. He... You see, God has answered it. And it's in, terms of a, it's in terms of a biblical universality. 
but not a false unbiblical universalism that seeks to do with Christ's work what God the Father did not intend to do with the work of Christ. May we be careful lest we step over those bounds that God himself has set for the work of his Son. As I close, and we need to do that, I'd like to pick up on those words of Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. I won't ask you to turn there, but I'd like to mention them again in your hearing. It says, he shall see his seed. And then in verse 11, it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. In closing, I'd like to share with you the words of a man whom Brother Gary mentioned last night, John Nelson Darby. One of the greatest hymns I believe Brother Darby ever wrote is entitled, I Shall Be Like Thy Son. Listen to these words as they reflect the Savior seeing the travail of his soul. By the way, that's you and me. I don't know how he can look at us and be satisfied, but praise God, he is. Aren't you glad? Brother Darby wrote, And is it so, I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he for me is won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory to his own blessed likeness brought. O Jesus, Lord, who loved me like to thee, fruit of thy work with thee too there to see, thy glory, Lord, while endless ages roll, myself the prize and travel of thy soul. Yet it must be, thy love had not its rest, were thy redeemed not with thee fully blessed, that love which gives not as the world but shares, all it possesses with its loved co-heirs. Nor I alone, listen to this, nor I alone, thy loved ones all complete, in glory round thee there with joy shall meet. All like thee, for thy glory like thee, Lord, object supreme of all, by all adored. I'll tell you this, in closing, brothers and sisters, the lamb got what he paid for. And one day, a host, a multitude of sinners from every nation and kindred will stand before him. And I would say to you this evening, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is worthy.